0: From the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. The topic, our refugee crisis. Host Leif Anderson, NAE President, talks with Scott Arbeiter, President of World Relief. Let's join in.
1: I'm Leif Anderson, President of the NAE, here today with Scott Arbeiter. Scott has been the President of World Relief since August of 2016. But this is after he served on his board for a decade, including three years as the board chair. His 17-year marketplace career included a variety of functions at Arthur Anderson and was named partner there. And then in 2001, Scott resigned from the partnership to serve at Elmbrook Church in Milwaukee for 11 years, where he was senior associate pastor and then lead pastor. So he brings together a unique blend of business, pastoral, and mission experience to World Relief and to us. Thanks for joining us today to talk about the refugee crisis.
2: Um, I'm proud of our longstanding association with the NAE, at least, and very glad to be with you today.
1: So let's start with a bit of background. World Relief is the humanitarian arm of the NAE and probably most people don't know the history, it actually started out with the same initials, sort of. It was the War Relief Commission of the NAE back in 1944 when evangelical denominations wanted to partner with sister churches in war-torn Europe to address the then-significant humanitarian crisis. So the War Relief Commission's vision then expanded over the years, reflected by a name change, to become World Relief. Scott, what else should people know about World Relief's history?
2: I think what I would add simply, Leith, is that we've been at this for a little over 70 years. Um, We've been able to serve in about 110 countries over that time. and Last year, uh, we were able to reach about 7 million people. I think the critical thing, though, is that uh, World Relief is unapologetic about the church, and it's unapologetic about the gospel, and that's really core to who we are. Our mission is to empower the local church to serve the vulnerable. And so when you think of world relief, uh, you need to think about the gospel going through the church to vulnerable and suffering people.
1: World relief does a lot in relief and development work over now a dozen countries around the world. I'd like you to just tell us some specifics of the type of things that you're doing, and especially uh, church empowerment zones and how it's not just relief and development but it's connected to the church for sustainability that is kind of unusual compared to other relief and development agencies.
2: Yeah, I think if you were to think about World Relief Ministry you could think about it uh, in uh, relief of disasters. If you think about earthquake in Haiti recently, um, more uh, a little bit more distant past in Nepal or, or back to the tsunami in Indonesia, uh, we're running to those places and um, trying to aid in the name of Jesus. But I think, as you said, Leith, our signature work really is the church empowerment zones. Um, we're seeing entire communities transformed with the church at the center of it. And the reason the church is at the center is because we believe that the way that God wants to reach these communities is through an empowered church that is bringing the gospel seamlessly integrated in both word and and deed. So we work with local pastors first, often taking a year or more to build a sense of common call and unity, and then helping them recognize how they can change that community, drawing both the unchurched and church community together to bring about holistic interventions, so we're not content just dealing with clean water or agriculture or health and nutrition, or HIV-AIDS abatement, we bring all those things and more, but we bring it through church networks who are out reaching the people one by one by one, family by family, village by village, with the authority of the local church at the center, and we're seeing fruit that we haven't seen for our full 70 years. And that church empowerment zone work, we're trying to also find ways to bring into the Far East, into Haiti, even into the Middle East, and so that's a work that we sense God is really bringing favor to.
1: Of course, there are places where there is no church, and so that's not possible. But it just, I don't know, it kind of thrills me, the idea that when relief and development takes place, that the church is connected, so the church gets credit, and then the church is there after, you know, budgets run out and people go home, and the church continues to do that. And And that brings us around to refugees, because I know that the church in the United States has been very active in doing its part as far as resettling refugees in the United States. Uh, Many people probably don't know there are only nine federally approved refugee resettlement agencies in the country and World Relief is one of them but also is the only evangelical agency that resettles refugees on behalf of the federal government. So World Relief is long committed to Supporting those who are fleeing violence and war as refugees, and it's actually the primary focus of our conversation today. I've heard it said that the current refugee crisis is the greatest one since World War II. I mean, is that right? And how do you measure something like that? Uh,
2: that is right, and I think it's measured and corroborated by the UN, by the U.S. Um, State Department, and uh, many other individual and uh, public think tanks. I think the, um, the numbers are so staggering that we really have difficulty uh, making them personal. 65 million people are displaced, meaning that they've had to flee their homes, but many of them are internally displaced within their own country. The refugee population that we're talking about is 21 million, and those are the people who have been forced to not only leave their home. But in fact, cannot return to their home country for fear of the fact that they will be persecuted, tortured, uh, and imprisoned. And so that refugee population is extremely vulnerable. If I can, for a moment, least let me—I uh, was just talking to some friends in the Midwest about this, trying to give them a way to get their arms around this. And I said, I want you to imagine that you were driving home from work tomorrow uh, in the city of Chicago. And every home you pass is empty. Every condo, every apartment, the streets are empty, the businesses are closed. Every home in Chicago is empty because the people had a fleet. But you need to extend that to the entire state of Illinois. But then you could take it to Wisconsin and Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Cleveland, St. Louis, and in fact, 12 Midwestern states, imagine them completely empty because every citizen had to flee their home. Then you have a picture of the 65 million displaced people and it's enormous, but it's also personal. Every one of them has a name, has a face, and has a story and it will relief. we've had the privilege of hearing those stories over cups of coffee at a kitchen table or sitting on a living room floor Uh, These are people made in the image of God and objects of His love.
1: You're talking about numbers that are difficult to comprehend, uh, painful to think about. These are families and people in in distress. So orient us to, to how the United States has responded since this
2: crisis began. Well, I think the thing that a lot of people might not recognize is that this is not a new thing for world refugees or for the U.S. government. The U.S. government recognized back in 1980 after the Vietnam War that it had an obligation, uh, and really there was a noble cause in, in accepting and welcoming refugees from around the world. And so what the U.S. government is doing now is really building on nearly 40 years of refugee history Strengthened quite a bit after 9-11 for all kinds of good and understandable reasons. And so the U.S. government has stepped up most recently the number of refugees to be accepted because of the enormous proportion of the crisis as we just discussed. Um, The difficulty, though, is that even with stepping that response up, uh, last year the U.S. resettled only about one-half of one percent of the refugees in the world. And under the current administration's proposals, we would be resettling about 2 tenths of 1% of the refugee population. So uh, the US has a history, but I think many would argue that for the greatest nation on Earth, as many of us would hold it to be, with the greatest security and resources, that our response to the refugees could be greater than it is.
1: We had questions at the NAE office about the relationship of U.S. security, border security, uh, and refugee resettlement, and I know that you must get those same kind of questions as well. So how
2: do you respond to those? We do get them, and I think the first response is we agree. Uh, We live in a dangerous world, and we're glad that the President and his administration take safety and security seriously. Um, We think that's right and responsible. but I think what a lot of people don't uh, don't know is that um, the refugee population is very different than the immigrant population. And often those two get conflated. Uh, very simply, an immigrant is someone who chooses to come to the United States, uh, often for economic reasons or other reasons. But it's a choice that they make, whether they come through the border, documented or not, whether they come in on a visa and then overstay that visa. But the refugee population is very different. They have no choice. The the only way a refugee can get into the United States is if they are invited by the State Department. So no refugee can raise their hand and say, I want to go to the US. They are without choice in the matter. But if the State Department chooses them, they will then put them through a vetting process that lasts from 18 to 24 months, in some cases long as three years, and that vetting is done by the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, and multiple US agencies. It includes biometric scans and uh, multiple interviews. And the truth is that if there's a question about whether or not that refugee poses a threat, uh, they simply are taken out of the program. And so there are many who don't make it into the the US after the vetting uh, process has been completed, and those who do have demonstrated a remarkable safety record of 3 million refugees resettled since 1980. Uh, not a single American life has been taken by a terrorist act uh, perpetrated by a refugee. That's no guarantee, and we should be cautious. But this is a remarkable group of vulnerable and well vetted people.
1: Maybe you've already sort of answered this question, but. Lots of people watch television and read the newspaper and the stories about significant number of refugees who have crossed from Turkey over to Greece and then across Europe into Germany and France and up into Scandinavia. And it seems kind of chaotic and the numbers seem very large and the challenges have been significant. So, how is the U.S. refugee system different from that of European countries?
2: That's a great question, Leith, and I think it's really understandable that people would be confused as they watch the news feeds of waves of uh, refugees coming onto the shores in Europe, whether it be by boat or in some cases they're traveling by land. There is um, very little um, that is known about many of those refugees. Um, there is not a screening process that there is in the U.S., and they come in great numbers that's a very different situation than it is in the US. So if we think of the European situation, and we think that that's the American situation, we would be right to be very concerned. So uh, in that it's very different, and the US State Department uh, controls who comes in, and only those who are invited make it in, I think we can look at this as very different than the European situation.
1: As far as Christians are concerned, and particularly evangelical Christians in America, th- there's fear. So Some people are just, they're afraid, and fear is shaping what their attitude is toward refugees as well as their interpretation of Scripture. So what's, what's your take on the role of fear in our country right now over this?
2: Well, I think there's probably a couple factors here. One is that uh, it's a fighting world, and there are reasons uh, that we should be Certainly alert, um, but as believers, I don't think fear is ever our best instinct, and I don't think it's um, what God gives us. We understand that He's given us not a spirit of fear, but of power, and love, and of a sound mind. We ought to operate out of that, even as we recognize we need to be diligent. But I think what really helps me most is I, I you know, so many scriptures go back and tell us that we, in fact, should enter in um, to a open-hearted view towards the stranger and the suffering. And I think about Philippians 2, where it says of Jesus, first uh, instructs us, let the mind or the attitude that's in Jesus be in you, who though he knew that he was the Son of God, he did not use that to his advantage, yet he humbled himself as a servant, and even to the point of death, death on a cross. So I ask myself, if Jesus were self-protective, What would have happened there would have been no manger and no cross and no resurrection and I would be dead in my sins but Jesus threw off all the protections of heaven because he loved you and me and the refugee enough to come for us and so the question I ask is what is it about those of us who follow Jesus in our response to this crisis what most resembles him and I think that a primary interest in our well-being and safety cannot be the principal driver. We should be wise, but we shouldn't be fearful.
1: Suppose that the number of refugees into the United States is um, reduced significantly, n- not just in the short term, but for the long term as well. Uh, what what does that mean for world relief? How does it affect world relief's work? And I'm particularly interested in, um, in terms of uh, Refugees that are already here and that World Relief may have uh, resettled in services now?
2: Well, the refugees that are already here, um, we have to recognize that um, the work that the government does to uh, bring them to the U.S. is only part of it. And uh, just to be real clear, World Relief or any of the resettlement agencies. Uh, We don't pick the refugees, we don't screen them, we don't find out about them until the State Department hands us the file and says, would you help us welcome them? But the welcome that can be done through the U.S. government is actually limited in time and in scope. And the beauty of the work that we've been able to do for nearly 40 years through World Relief is to engage the churches. And we've engaged thousands of churches and tens of thousands of volunteers who not only get that initial resettlement done, but they help refugees integrate into the culture, into the broader community, and if they're interested, into the very life of the church itself. And so our work with refugees is much broader than an initial settlement work by the government. So with a significant reduction, um, we have to reduce our staff, but that means not only will we uh, not be able to do their initial resettlement, but our ability to mobilize the churches and the individual believers in those churches to continue the work with the refugees is going to be limited. Um, if you imagine, you know, uh, a church that has been told you have to close for four months, which is the current proposal in the refugee ban, and then when you reopen, you can only have about um, 45% of the congregants that you had prior, but you had set your staff for the previous 110,000 number that the government had asked us to be ready for, you recognize you're going to have to cut your staff. We will. We have to recognize our realities. But the implications to the broader refugee community and to an infrastructure that is well-trained and capable of reaching many more is pretty dramatic.
1: Suppose that there's a significant reduction or a total uh, ban on refugees into the United States for a long time. I don't know what a long time is, but let's say years to come. What, what, what do you think would be the effect of that uh, in our country and beyond?
2: Well, if I pull the lens out a little bit, what I'm um, concerned about at the broader level, uh, forget for a moment the impact on world relief. I think that it generates a risk as a nation, uh, will become more small-minded, less generous-hearted, and will be captivated by fear. Those are not the marks, I think, of the best instincts of the American culture and really what has been a noble history in American compassion for uh, decades, if not centuries. So I'm concerned about the impact it has on our national psyche. But I'm also concerned about what it means um, for our culture, because our culture has been enriched by refugees and immigrants over the years. Many of us can trace our history back uh, to refugees and immigrants who came from trying circumstances. Uh, I, a few years back, went and got the records from my own grandfather, Lorenz Arbeiter, who came in uh, from Germany. Uh, back in the early 1920s, I've got his signature coming in off the boat, and I recognize what he and so many others did to make this culture as rich and as varied as it is, and and I fear that we would lose that, and I think that would be a great loss.
1: You're talking here personally, uh, so I can sense in your voice as well as referring to your grandfather that uh, this is not just an organizational and uh, government issue, that this is personal. What 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 draws you into this ministry? I uh,
2: There are so many things we thought I'll just mention two. One is my biblical conviction. I, I think this issue uh, has become first a political issue for many. I think as believers we need to make it first a matter of our um, biblical theology and then we need to make it a human issue. For me, I can't help reading the Scriptures without recognizing uh, the call of God throughout the Scriptures um, to care for the vulnerable and the suffering. You know, it's interesting to me that if we read our Old Testament carefully, the call to care for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger is second only to the call to worship the one true God. If we take a look at the ministry of Jesus, He just always seemed to take the people that were on the margin and put them in the center of the picture, and the people that were in the center of the picture, he often put on the margins. So my understanding of Scripture compels me to think differently about the vulnerable and the suffering, but at a human level, I also think when Jesus said, do to others what you'd have done to yourself, I ask myself, what would I do if my children, my loved ones were trapped in a nation where they were being bombed out of their homes? where they were fleeing for their lives, grieving likely because they'd already lost someone in their family. They were cold and hungry and unwanted anywhere. What would I want someone to do for them? I would want someone to open their arms and offer them a welcome. And so at a human level, I just need to turn this from a lot of nameless, faceless numbers into real people whose stories are so much like our own. And as I do that, I don't only feel that I should do this, I want to do this work.
1: Well, let's talk about a specific person then. So we at the NAE, we did a podcast with Vin Chung, who was a child, not a Christian, not from a Christian family, a refugee uh, to the U.S. from Vietnam. His family was in a boat in the South China Sea, abandoned, overcrowded, little prospect that they could ever reach land or live, and they were picked up by a ship commissioned by World Vision. And it's a really a powerful story of rescue and redemption, and I, I love this story because he talks about the small church in Arkansas that welcomed his family in, and then he became a Christian through the ministry of that church. And then he went on, graduated from Harvard College, Harvard Medical School, he's a successful doctor, and amazingly, he now sits on the board of World Vision, the organization that as in the name of Jesus Christ brought him to the United States. And there are a lot of stories like this, but it, that kind of goes against the argument that we should uh, limit our refugees to those who
2: are Christians, right? I I think it does. I mean, we're very concerned about the Christians that are being um, so brutally treated, particularly in the Middle East, but, but not just the Middle East, in uh, parts of Africa and Asia as well. Um, the State Department is rightly you know, called much of it a genocide. And so we're anxious to welcome Christians, but there are so many suffering people of other faiths, Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or people who do not declare any faith at all. And they're they're made in the image of God and they're objects of his love. And so we think our embrace needs to be broader. And, you know, Jesus was so clear in his story, you know, on uh, the Samaritan who was opening his heart of compassion to someone who actually despised him. So our neighbor is not just the person who lives right nearby. Our neighbor is the one who's suffering that we might have access to, and the religious faith is not the litmus test of whether or not we reach the suffering person.
1: One last very practical question, and that is, what can Christians and churches here in the United States do to support refugees?
2: It's a great question, Leith. And what I've been telling people, and I hope it's easy to remember, three things. One is um, educate. And what I mean by that is it's really dig into the realities of the refugee issue. Um, if you go to the World Relief website, you're going to find a lot of materials that will help you do that. Uh, get to know the reality of the stories, the safety of the vetting process, and the vulnerability of this group of people. And then I would say engage. Um, All of this becomes much more real if within your community there are any refugees that are being resettled, volunteer, uh, teach English as a second language class, serve in some fashion where you get to see the humanity of these people and their stories become a story not of them and us, but of we together. And then embrace. I think what you're going to find is once you've educated yourself, once you've engaged, you're going to find yourself embracing a group of people that you're going to find your encounter with Jesus is deeper and broader because you stepped into the places where he steps into and the places he calls us to. And not only will we serve the suffering refugee, but we're going to find that we meet Jesus in powerful ways as we do.
1: Our guest on today's conversation has been Scott Arbeiter, President of World Relief. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Scott.
0: The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at NAE.net.